you here this evening, welcome to the Church of the Resurrection. And uh, if you're new, I'd love to meet you after the service. We're beginning today a Lenten sermon series on the passion of Jesus Christ. Um, the Anglican tradition that we're a part of focuses in on the passion during Holy Week. That's a great thing about our tradition, but at the end of Holy Week, I'm always a little disappointed that we didn't spend more time on the passion. It's so important. It's really right at the center of our faith. And um, I'd just like to spend more time on it. So uh, this year, we're going to spend all of Lent reading through a couple of chapters from Luke's Passion. And I pray that it will be helpful to you, and that it will draw your uh, hearts more and more to the Jesus who died for us and rose again. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I had this assignment that uh, a professor, he made us translate all four of the gospel passion narratives from the Greek to English and do it very slowly and carefully. And I was so frustrated because I, I know the story. I've heard it a thousand times. I'm so glad I was assigned to do that. It changed my life. And so that's part of why the love is here. And I, and I want to share a bit of that with you. So I hope you'll benefit from going through a little bit of the passion narrative uh, with us over these next few weeks. We're calling this sermon series um, Jesus on Trial because Jesus is, in fact, on trial throughout most of the passion narrative. That's a fact, and we'll be, we'll be following that in chapters 22 and 23 of Luke. But Jesus' trial is a miscarriage of justice from start to finish. The whole thing is a sham. And for us as readers of the story, there's never really any doubt about Jesus' innocence, which only serves to highlight everyone else's guilt. So while the spotlight is on Jesus as we go through the passion narrative, in the shadows, it's really everyone else who's on trial, all of the other characters, and by implication, all of us as well. And at the conclusion of the story, Jesus is the only person in all of humanity, without even a trace of sin, which makes him the only person who could be a suitable substitute for us in dying for our sins. And that's what we're going to be able to explore together in this whole series and um, a little bit more focusing in on Judas after we pray. Let's pray together first. Almighty God, thank you for your word. We praise you for it, especially this passion account from Luke's gospel. We pray that you would open it up to us and open our hearts to hear and understand and then to obey. Help us, Lord, to hear from you tonight and to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you should find a copy of Luke chapter 22 in the Pew Bibles. It's page 828. 828, please turn there. And we're going to be looking at chapter 22, 1 through 23. And as we move through this passage, pretty much verse by verse, I hope to show you um, that Judas, first of all, chose to deliver his friend into bondage in order to make a profit. And then Jesus chose to deliver his friends and his enemies from bondage at great cost. And then in choosing between them, I want to invite you to make a wise choice 
So first of all, looking at verses one through six, we're going to begin this trial with the prosecution's case against Jesus in these first six verses. And from the outset, the trial of Jesus was really fishy. Before it even started, the Jewish religious leaders were already agreed not only on Jesus' guilt, but also on the punishment. And so verse two of this story, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. If they gave any thought to bringing him to trial, it wasn't for the sake of justice, but it was only a formality to rubber stamp the punishment that they intended for him. But these religious leaders, they had a problem, and the problem was that Jesus was enormously popular with the crowds. At the time, uh, there were a great many people who were coming to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Jewish feast of Passover. So we see in verse 2 that the religious leaders feared the people, but when Judas, in verse 3, surnamed Iscariot, one of the twelve, approached the Jewish leaders with an opportunity to arrest Jesus in private, they were glad. They rejoiced, it says in the text. They uh, were so happy, and they seized the opportunity. And then the already fishy trial of Jesus got a lot more fishy. Judas was one of the twelve whom Jesus had appointed for leadership in the coming kingdom of God. A little later in the same chapter, Jesus says to the 12, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel was about to be resurrected, to be reborn and Jesus was to be the king of this resurrected people. And he was offering high posts to all of his, his followers, and uh, Judas was among them. He was going to have a, a top spot in the new administration. He had every reason to believe that Jesus would be able to deliver on these promises. Um, after all, he had witnessed in traveling with Jesus all the amazing things that Jesus could do. Jesus healed the sick, and he had power over the storms. Uh, he was able to cast out demons. He was able to feed the hungry, even raise the dead. He was there as Jesus taught on all different topics, and his teaching was always revolutionary, whether it was about love or justice or money. And Judas was sent out by Jesus on occasion on missions, and he always came back uh, with success. In short, Judas had had a front row seat for the inauguration of the kingdom of God. He had every reason to believe that this was going to happen. And now, with the time drawing near, all he had to do was to abide with Jesus in this final trial. And by the way, the Greek word that is translated trial is the same word that's translated temptation. So this is not, the, this current trial that Jesus is about to go through is not the first trial that he goes through in the gospel, uh, Jesus was already tried or tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of this story. And when Jesus did not give in to temptation during the first trial, Luke says that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. As it turns out, Passover was that time, and it was Judas who presented the opportunity. Satan had failed in his efforts to tempt Jesus, so he targeted one of Jesus' 
close insiders, one of the 12. In verse 3, he entered into Judas. We should not, however, think that Judas was an innocent victim at all here. Everybody in this story has free agency. Jesus had repeatedly warned his disciples about the trials to come, teaching them to watch and pray so that they would not fall into temptation. And from what we know of Judas, he was especially trusted. They trusted him with the money. He was made the secretary of the treasury for Jesus' new kingdom. But in the end, that was how Judas succumbed to temptation. Judas was greedy. He was a thief. And he stole out of the treasury in order to profit from his friends. So when the opportune time came, Satan found Judas a ready accomplice, and Judas chose to cooperate. The 12 were those who had chosen to follow Jesus where he led them. Judas, however, left Jesus. Do you see that in verse 4? He left Jesus, and instead of following his master, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers regarding how he might hand Jesus over to them. Verse 5, the chief priests and other leaders were glad. They rejoiced, and they agreed to pay Judas a handsome bounty in exchange for Jesus. Matthew tells us it was 30 pieces of silver. So then verse 6, Judas consented, and he began looking for a private opportunity away from the crowds in order to deliver Jesus into their hands. And this opportunity will come soon enough at the end of this chapter uh, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, when in the darkness, Judas will identify Jesus with a kiss, and he will hand him over, delivering his friend into bondage in order to make a profit. So in these first six verses, the final trial of Jesus has begun, but already the evidence points to Jesus' innocence and implicates many others in the guilt of what's about to happen. And foremost among them is Judas. He's Jesus' trusted companion and lieutenant, and he is chief among the guilty here. The prosecution has no case against Jesus. It's Judas who is guilty because Judas chose to deliver his friend into bondage in order to make a profit. Now as the trial continues, let's hear from the defense starting in verse 7, um, and we'll read this next section through verse 20. I'm continually amazed at Jesus' composure in the face of danger. In this case, Jesus didn't drop everything to respond to the crisis that had developed uh, with these leaders conspiring with Judas. Jesus was no doubt grieved by what his friend was doing. He, of course, knew what was happening, um, but Jesus did not respond with revenge. In fact, even though he clearly knew the plot against him, he didn't react to it at all. Instead of being reactive, Jesus is proactive, and he mounts a defense but the defense that he mounts is not for himself. He mounts a defense for his friends and for his enemies. Ultimately, in the face of imminent danger, Jesus chose to save others rather than himself. 
Let's look at what he did. Look at this. He sent, first of all, Peter and John into Jerusalem, verse 8, to make preparations for Passover. And because Jerusalem was crowded and because this was going to be their last meal together, they needed to find a large, furnished, and private place to have this meal. So Jesus told them, verse 10, to look for a man carrying a water jar. And then they were to follow that man to a house, verse 11, where the host would greet them and show them, verse 12, uh, that upper room where they could banquet together. In verse 13, they obeyed the Lord, and everything happened just as Jesus had said. Story moves on to talk about the Lord's Supper, the institution of it, with the famous words that Jesus said, and it's very... Um, easy to get caught up into all of that and miss what's just happened with these two disciples going to find the upper room. We mustn't miss the significance of these verses 7 to 13. Jesus gave Peter and John simple instructions. All they had to do was obey. But the instructions were really bizarre. A man carrying a water jar, for example, that never happens. That was women's work. A man would not do that, especially in the big city of Jerusalem. And then they were to follow that man to a guest house at Passover that had an empty space, a large, furnished, empty space at Passover, like uh, trying to find a place to stay spur of the moment during the inauguration on Capitol Hill, something like that. I mean, it's just unheard of to find a space like this. Um, these were bizarre requests from Jesus, highly unlikely. So it took a leap of faith for Peter and for John to go ahead and do what Jesus said, to obey him. Had they not done it, Jesus would have accomplished it in some other way. But in obeying him and then finding everything, verse 13, just as he had told them, they grew a bit closer to Jesus. You see that? It's a lovely picture of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. There's an old hymn we sing sometimes. It sounds very trite, but it's, I think, very deep. It says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's absolutely true. And that's what Peter and John were modeling in this case. Verse 14, when it was time for Passover, Jesus gathered in the upper room with the twelve. And at this point, Luke mentions something that isn't found in any of the other gospel accounts. Jesus said, verse 15, I have earnestly desired, or I have desiringly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's really interesting, isn't it? When you think about what's about to happen to Jesus, he's about to be betrayed. All of his friends are going to leave. He's going to go to a kangaroo court with uh, charges that are trumped up against him. It's going to be a miscarriage of justice. He's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified and die. Why would he earnestly desire to have this meal? Why wouldn't he delay it as long as possible? Why wouldn't he avoid it at all costs? Well, he tells us why. In the next verse, he says, for or because, verse 16, I tell you, I will not eat it presumably again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of the Passover meal. He's not going to eat it again 
until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? We think back to the story that we heard from Exodus chapter 12, the original story of the Passover. That'll help us when God's people were in bondage in Egypt originally. God came to the rescue through a series of 10 plagues because when God comes to rescue his people, he comes and judges his enemies. And God's final and most severe judgment was this. On the night of their redemption, God promised that he would pass through Egypt, striking down the firstborn son of every man and beast in the land. But before he brought this judgment, he gave a way of salvation. And this was open to all, for anyone who would trust and obey him. They were to take a spotless lamb into their house on the 10th day and keep it in their house with them until the 14th day. So it would have to become a kind of pet that had to live with them and be a part of the family. They could take a lamb or they could take a goat. Think about having that, a goat in your house for four days. Choose the lamb, right? But even that would be pretty messy, pretty gross, but you'd start to become... Uh, kind of attached to this creature. And then on the fourth day at twilight, you would slit its throat and collect the blood and smear the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil. And then feasting on that lamb that had been a part of your family. During the meal or afterwards, the Lord passed through Egypt. And wherever he found that blood, he passed over that house because there was no further judgment needed against that house. Judgment had already been accomplished there through the death of a fitting substitute for the firstborn son. That's actually what happened. Uh, They trusted and obeyed the Lord. They followed these instructions. And because of that 10th plague that fell upon the Egyptians, uh, the Israelites were finally able to leave Egypt. They were finally able to flee. And from that time on, God commanded them every year to remember what he had done to save them, uh, to have this meal as, as a memorial and to remember both God's judgment against sin, God's judgment against sin, and also God's provision of salvation through an acceptable substitute, a sacrifice. So what did Jesus mean all of these years later, 1900 years later, when he talked about the fulfillment of the Passover meal? He was talking, of course, about the greater salvation that he was about to bring through his death on the cross. And as this sham of a trial is going to show us again and again, Jesus was the one who was spotless. It's the rest of us who are guilty. We are the ones deserving of God's righteous judgment. But God so loved the world that he gave his firstborn son to become our spotless Passover lamb. The sinless Savior died in our stead so that we might be set free from bondage to sin and death. So Jesus took this Passover meal that had always looked back, looked back those centuries, back to God's salvation in Egypt, looked back uh, to a shadow of things to come, and he turned it to face the future, the imminent future 
his death on the cross. He turned it to face the other direction. And from this moment on, the meal would now point to the Passover's fulfillment, the greater Passover that Jesus purchased for all the world through his sacrificial death on the cross. Verse 19, therefore he took bread and he broke it with them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No longer was it about deliverance from bondage in Egypt. That was merely a shadow of better things to come. Now it would be about Jesus, the great Passover lamb, who delivers us from bondage to sin and death. And in verse 20, he also took the cup of wine and shared it with them, saying, this cup is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. Again, he took the Passover and he turned it to face the opposite direction. No longer would it be about the tenth and final plague in Egypt. Instead, he pointed it to the new covenant that was, he was about to achieve through his crucifixion and death. In those days, every covenant would be ratified in blood. An animal would be sacrificed as if to say, on behalf of both parties, so be done to me if I break this covenant. So may my throat also be slit if I break this covenant. And that blood that would be shed would seal the covenant. In this case, Jesus was paying that penalty in advance for those who put their faith in him. He was paying the penalty for us so that our sins might be forgiven and we could rest secure in the covenant, the new covenant that he established. This new covenant was what uh, God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah when he foretold a day when no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That's something far, far better than even the great deliverance that occurred in Egypt. He's talking about the church universal, a community of people from every tribe and tongue who are united by this act of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins through his sacrificial death on our behalf. He is the true Passover lamb. So this is what Jesus was doing in verses 7 through 20. This was the defense that he mounted against Judas and the religious leaders. It was a rescue plan, not for himself, but for us. And in terms of the trial of Jesus, this rescue plan is the only good reason for Jesus to be put to death. Not to punish him for wrongdoing, he was innocent, but to cover us. To cover us so that when God passes over, he might receive God's righteous judgment against sin. And so these verses show us that Jesus is innocent, but he's also the Savior because Jesus chose at great cost to deliver both his friends and his enemies. Now, this is only the beginning of Jesus on trial. We're going to continue seeing him on trial through uh, subsequent weeks as we continue reading through the Passion all the way up to Jesus' crucifixion at the end of chapter 23. But we need to bring this to a conclusion today. And we have to decide 
how we're going to respond. And the last three verses in this passage give us such an opportunity as momentarily both Jesus and Judas are brought together in the spotlight. So let's just look at these last three verses and uh, come, come to judgment on this passage, choosing whom we will serve. We saw earlier that Jesus didn't need immediately to respond to the Judas crisis uh, after Judas had conspired with the religious leaders. But now, having celebrated and redefined Passover with the Twelve, and having signified why he is about to go willingly to his death as the new Passover lamb, Jesus finally gets around to the topic of his betrayal. And oh yes, he has known about this. Look at verse 21. For behold, the hand of his betrayer is together with his on the table. Yet amazingly, Jesus still loves Judas. He loves his enemy by refusing to name Judas as his betrayer. If you look at the last verse, 23, the the 12 are asking one another, who is this? Who is he talking about? Uh, They don't know. Jesus, for the time being, is protecting, um, protecting Judas, keeping his identity secret, because the betrayal is not yet complete. There's still time for Judas to turn back. And so he issues this solemn challenge in verse 22, a solemn challenge to Judas, and I think it's a solemn challenge to us as well. Verse 22, he says, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is Jesus' final warning to Judas, urging him to choose this day whom he will serve, and I think it's a choice we have to make as well. As I mentioned, Jesus is going to continue on to crucifixion. This trial is going to continue on a ways. But right now, we have to make this choice. It's easy to choose between Jesus and Judas. You know, uh, it's quite clear who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Both men will soon be dead. Only Jesus will be raised from the dead. Judas will be forever regarded as a traitor and a thief while Jesus will become the victorious Savior. Hopefully, everyone can see the big picture um, and know that Jesus' side is the right one to be on. And not only so, but the story makes it clear, right, that Judas chose to deliver his friend into bondage in order to make a profit, while Jesus chose to deliver his friends and his enemies from bondage at great cost to himself. So clearly Jesus is the good guy in this story. But what about the harder choice, not the choice between Jesus and Judas, but the choice between two masters? Because this is what is going on underneath this passage. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he said, You cannot serve God and money, just as an example. Um, What's the choice we're going to be making between the two masters that are brought up by this passage? Judas has to make this choice, and Judas would have known uh, the story of his namesake from Genesis. Uh, Maybe you don't know that Judas is just the Greek way of saying Judah, And there was a Judah that came, or there was a Judas that came before this one. And the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, one brother decided to make a profit 
from it. And it was Judas, the original Judas, who made uh, 20 pieces of silver profit by selling his bro brother into slavery. Uh, he, he was judged as being in the wrong for that. And Judas, in this story, should have known better than to sell Jesus. He still can make this choice, um, but it's really this choice between two masters. Judas had undoubtedly heard Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He'd heard him say so much about money. Yet Judas had not put it into practice, and slowly over time, his love for money had eclipsed any love he might have had for the Lord. I'm absolutely confident that Judas wasn't closely following the Lord all the way up until this moment and then suddenly turned. There had been many small decisions along the way. Gradually, as Judas took a little bit from the purse here and then a little more and then a little more until finally his own profit became his aim in keeping the treasury. And then Satan, who was looking for an opportune time, came along and found Judas a ready accomplice. I wonder, where is the battleground for you in Lent right now? What are the two masters that are battling for your affections, or maybe more? Are you, like Judas, trying to decide between serving God or money? Or maybe there is another master that is battling for your affections. Someone or something who slowly, maybe almost imperceptibly, pulls you away from the Lord every day a little further through little seemingly unimportant choices in the mundane. A little compromise here, a little indulgence there, and suddenly you find yourself enslaved to a deadly master. Look again at verse 22. The son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. What Jesus was saying, in other words, was that he was choosing to serve his father by enacting this long-promised plan of salvation. No one would be able to stop it except for Jesus himself. And Jesus will struggle mightily with this choice in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet ultimately, he will remain true to his father, choosing to go through with it. And again, Jesus will choose to deliver his friends and enemies from bondage at great cost. But at this moment, the choice belongs to Judas. This is his garden of Gethsemane at the table with Jesus. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. For Judas, the wise choice is not to deliver his friend into bondage, for profit, the wise choice is to be covered when the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Only those who choose Jesus as their master are covered. It's Jesus' blood that signifies this covering. Jesus is the acceptable substitute. And by the way, as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, it is great to partake of the Lord's Supper together. It is not the Lord's Supper that is what covers us, though. These things are signs that point to what covers us, namely Jesus' broken body and Jesus' blood spilled for us. 
Taking communion doesn't cover you. What covers you is the body and blood of the Lord. And it is through his death that we are included in the new covenant. It is his body and blood that are the basis for our relationship with God. So today I want to encourage you to make the wise choice and to choose between these two masters, choose Jesus as your master. Put away those false gods because you cannot serve two masters. You have to choose. And don't leave here today without being covered by the Lord. Don't leave here today without the blood of Christ on the doorposts and the lintel of your heart. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much as to give your son for us as a spotless lamb. Thank you for this gift and thank you for the hope that we have not only in Jesus' death, but also his resurrection. We praise you for the promise of resurrection life. And we pray that you would empower us to follow you, to make you our master with all that we are and all that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.